Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Phil. Writing these intros can be a pain in the ass. The one I have to write tonight is for episode 107, in which we talk with Connor Habib about Joy Williams' novel Breaking and Entering. I've been teaching all day and I don't feel up for writing anything. Fortunately, though, I have a copy of Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt's Oblique Strategy stack which allows one to pull a card from the pile and apply its advice to whatever creative task impends. Always first steps is what I got from my oblique strategies poll, and it seems excellent advice for any occasion, really. As J.F. and I discussed in episode 82 on the I Ching, one definition of wisdom could be the ability to see transformations at the moment of their inception, in the very seeds of formation. When editing these shows, it's always interesting to note when it is that the emerging drift of the conversation, a living being all its own, sends up its first green shoots. In our conversation with Connor, it's only a minute after the beginning of the recording when Connor remarks that while Williams is a deeply philosophical and political writer, the philosophy and politics come in on the level of style. She is, I would say, one of the most profoundly philosophical and spiritual writers who does not try to insert it, does not try to make political art, does not try to make philosophical art, but rather it just kind of unfurls from Mm. style, which is a very strange um, but correct way for it to unfurl. Connor is quite right. This is the proper aesthetic move. But what does it mean? to express thoughts through literary style rather than what we are pleased to call content. That's what the ensuing conversation is about. Connor is an electric presence on the mic. I am reminded of Henry Miller's comment that listening to Alexander Scriabin's poem of ecstasy was like taking a bath in ice, cocaine, and rainbows. That's what it's like to talk to Connor. He is a lecturer, writer, podcaster, sex worker, rights advocate, and was an award-winning gay adult performer. In recent years, he has become a major voice in the intellectual weirdosphere, and a much-needed one. He is, in the truest sense of the term, a free thinker. Connor's politics are not so much libertarian as libertine, and I mean that in the best possible way— On his podcast, Against Everyone with Connor Habib, he insists upon and fights for the autonomy of the pleasurable imagination, whether that be expressed in sex, art, or any of those other pursuits that routinely attract the unwelcome attention of censors and scolds. We talk about politics relatively little in this episode, but if that sort of thing interests you, and if you enjoy our conversation today, I've got good news. J.F. and I recorded an episode of Against Everyone with Connor Habib, with Connor Habib, and it was nothing but ice cocaine and rainbows. He's releasing it in a few days, so keep an eye out for it. If you like what he's doing, think about supporting him on Patreon. 
Shit, support us on Patreon. Why don't you? Thank you. You're beautiful. And I love you. Okay, on with the show. I mean, let's start with the obvious question, Connor. We we were talking about doing a show for a while, exchanging emails, and then you uh, suggested we do Joy Williams' novel, Breaking and Entering. So what is it that made you choose that particular book? Yeah, it's funny. I, um, I... I'm a huge Joy Williams fan, and I actually I didn't know that this episode would end up sort of coordinating with the release of her new novel in the U.S., Harrow, which I haven't read yet. I mean, it's literally only been out three days. But, you know, she's a very strange, strange writer, weird writer, who gets her due in some ways critically, but in other ways is just sort of completely ignored or forgotten. So there have been big pieces on her in the New York Times. She was nominated for some prizes. She won a big literary prize this year as well. But she remains pretty sort of not known. And yet she is, I would say, one of the most profoundly philosophical and spiritual writers who does not try to insert it does not try to make political art, does not try to make philosophical art, but rather it just kind of unfurls from mm. style, which is a very strange um, but correct way for it to unfurl from an artist. And I think, um, you know, when you guys did the Doris Lessing episode, you know, I thought, uh, you know what? I've got a really weird fucking book for those guys to <laughs> to talk <Yeah>. about. <laughs> and um, actually, in some ways, you know, the best Joy Williams book to start with probably is The Quick and the Dead, which I'm going to read a short passage from maybe later in the episode. Very short oh, to sort of exemplify some of the style. But this one is even stranger than that in that y you... <laughs> You're left wandering around in almost a, a sort of realm of total possibility of shifting mm -hmm. spaces and landscapes. And uh, you don't even necessarily know who's alive and who's dead in the entire book as it goes on. You don't know why people speak the way they speak. And uh, it's very unsettling. And I think it leaves me with a feeling of the weird in a way that uh, many of the things that you guys talk about do. You know, the novel's not super available now. I mean, you can get it used. It's not like it's a rare find. But, you know, you wouldn't go to the bookstore and just see it sitting on the shelf. Mm. And so I think also for that reason, I wanted to maybe bring some more awareness to it. But there's one more thing to say about this book. Um, and then we can start, which is that there's also reportedly another version of this book. Um, so mm. as, as much as this book, and we can talk about all these things, has all these sort of uh, this sort of multidimensional, multifaceted, multilayered, plenty potential feel to it. The book itself has a doppelganger in the world and she wrote it and it was extremely, extremely challenging, far more challenging than this version. And apparently like it's this sort of holy sacred text that writers pass around, but like only a few writers that I know have seen it. I do know someone who has 
has read it and said, yeah, it's just astonishing and just really, really intense and difficult. And I think that doubleness also made me want to bring it on because it, <laughs> you guys often if there's one theme to weird studies that shows up again and again, it's when art either spills out into the real or just smudges it so much that these distinctions become uh, preposterous or whatever. And so this is the, the, the doubleness of that extra book also brought it all to mind for me. About that book, was it published or is it just a manuscript? It was the manuscript of the book apparently that was going to come out. But like at the last minute, the publisher was like, we cannot do this. <laughs> so wow. and if you read this version, you know, this is also intense and strange on its own. So there yeah. must have been something extremely um, bizarre about this other version, which I unfortunately haven't read. But one day I will. And maybe it'll make me go uh, completely mad. Wow. Is there any published account of the ways that the unpublished version differs from the published version? Not that I know of, no. Wow. In an age of where it seems impossible to keep a secret that there's a Samizdat version of a novel floating around that contains wonders, but we only know that it contains wonders. We don't know anything about what wonders it contains. Hmm. Well, if that doesn't arouse the appetite, I don't know what will. Well, there's so many reasons to read this book, um, Weird Studies listeners. It is, as Connor says, like a strange book. Dreamlike in a way, I mean, that word is bandied about too much. Um, it, it is dreamlike in the most profound way, in the way that shows you to what extent life is dreamlike, <laughs> as opposed to like trying to represent reality as though it were a dream. It shows you the kind of oniric quality of reality itself. She writes at a kind of knife's edge, temporally speaking, where you're in this kind of present. You know, I, I, I was thinking a lot, Connor, about. Deleuze's idea of aeon, not the chronological present that moves through this kind of like uh, ruler of time. Like, uh, how do I explain this? Not this kind of like present succeeding a present constantly, the, the way we normally think of time, but a form of time that is has no present, that's constantly just shooting off towards into the future and the past at the same time so that memories and the present moment and what's just about to happen are all kind of tangled up in this strange moment. It's a haunting book, and I think a haunted book. It's like, it truly is, I think, a kind of ghost story where the characters are haunting locations that are themselves haunted by those who should be in these locations but aren't. And that'll make sense in a bit when we talk about the plot. But it is a really a marvelous kind of piece of writing. And uh, there were many moments where I was like, oh my God, the sheer ingenuity of how she brings things together and how she'll bring this strange conversation to some kind of weird climax where this revelation about the nature of time is like laid out for you <laughs> in, in a purely, as you were saying, Connor, a purely imminent way, not in the kind of didactic coming in from the outside kind of way. Just this, these ideas are just flowing out of the, uh, of the story. I mean, I read the, uh, the Paris Review interview with Joy Williams, and um, there's just one little bit I'll read, and then I'll shut up. She said, uh, what a story is, is devious. It pretends transparency and forthrightness. It engages with ordinary people, ordinary matters, recognizable stuff. But this is all a masquerade. What good stories deal with is the horror and incomprehensibility of time, the dark encroachment of old catastrophes. 
As a form, the short story is hardly divine, though all excellent art has its mystery, its spiritual rhythm. She's talking specifically about the short story, but in, in a sense, this novel borrows a lot of its stylistic and structural components from the short story, I find. Anyways, um, fascinating book that I, I wouldn't have read if you hadn't suggested it, Connor. So thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe we can talk more broadly about the kinds of books that do this. I mean, this is, hmm. this is a rare feat of, um, hmm, how do I say? Like if I read a novel by Dennis Cooper, which is extremely violent, and I really like Dennis Cooper, but they can be extremely sexually violent. Uh, or maybe Samuel Delaney has a book called Tides of Lust, which is also extremely sexually violent, where you read it and you feel implicated in the violence of the book. Like um, you almost feel like it's your fault by the time you get to the end. But there there are books that are also um, implicate you in a kind of new philosophy or a kind of new apprehension of the spirit. And uh, it's very rare. It's very rare that something like that will happen where, and, and I don't ex exactly know how to explain it. And I could even hear you, Jeff, like when you're talking, having a little trouble describing what this book is. It's not yeah. easy. We can talk about the plot, which is actually quite simple, but it's not an easy book to talk about because what happens is it begins to rearrange, you know, like, like some other good literature, it begins to rearrange the structure of your thinking almost in a way. Mm -hmm. I find her writing so unbearably agitating that it's hard for me to read without writing immediately. Like I want to put the book down and write. And uh, actually the real challenge for me is to continue, not because it's not good, but because I feel it at work in me immediately because of the way she writes her sentences, the dialogue, more so than the way the story unfolds, which of course also takes its own bizarre directions. Mm. Yeah, it's like kind of like reading Heraclitus, where you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read all the fragments, and after three or four fragments, you're like, okay, that's too many, okay, too okay, many I'm ideas. Done. Yeah, <laughs> I need to, do, I need to write or think or take a walk or something. Yeah, man, I feel that. I mean, what you're describing, I mean, this is something I come back to all the time: is the musicality in writing, or the musicality in other art forms, like film as well. But uh, something I think of as musicality is not necessarily, you know, euphony or something sounding nice, but like a certain sense of like art that does what we associate with music, something that philosophers have talked about music since Plato, at least, um, is the odd way that music seems to transgress a certain boundary that we have between ourselves and uh, the art uh, that we are engaging with. There's a kind of a boundary, a perhaps we could say a subject-object boundary. And like, you know, you look at a painting, it's I looking at a painting. And of course, there are painters like Mark Rothko who try to undo that. And Rothko, I think, very successfully. I think it's possible, obviously, for anybody to fall into a kind of a rapture looking at a painting and dissolving that sense of boundary. But music is notorious for this because... Uh, it's so immaterial. There's a sort of, we don't know how the trick is being done. We don't know how it is that just sounds, not even words, not even something that's verbalizable as content can come in through our ear and somehow not represent, say, an idea of sadness or an idea of joy, but actually instantiate sadness or joy in us. And I'm always 
attracted to any art that works like that. And this novel works like that to me. And perhaps this is jumping back to what you were saying right at the beginning, Connor. The kind of a classic weird studies move is to talk about art that refuses to stay put in this sort of... In the, the, in the frame. The protective, yeah. Yes, to stay put in the frame. That's quite right. And that's a particular way that I feel like this novel doesn't stay put in the frame, that there's a kind of an emotional or affective contagion going on. Oh, that's nice. When yeah. I read it. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I, I think the best thing to do maybe to give people a sense of it is to read a little bit here and there of it or, or some of her nice. other writings so they can understand the style that we're talking about. But does someone want to recount the plot first, which again is quite simple, I think. Yeah. It's the story of a couple who, for reasons that are not important at first, wander about the, the Florida Keys living in other people's homes. So essentially breaking into wealthy, absent people's homes and kind of just living their lives a little bit, passing themselves off as friends who are house sitting or whatnot, and then meeting the people in the neighborhood. And and uh, they do this as a kind of, they call it the thing, let's do the thing. And uh, that's the extent of the plot, I think, uh, because then it goes all, it goes all, all over the place from there, but that's kind of the container, I think. Um, does anybody want to add something to that? There's so much more to say. I mean, only that they also have a white German shepherd, um, right. which I also need to, to address, but, um, and that Willie and Liberty are the main characters and Liberty and Clem is their dog and Liberty ends up sort of adopting somewhat some of the local kids every once in a while. And she becomes particularly attached to one named Teddy at a certain point whose mother is having two different uh, love affairs, essentially. Stepmother. Stepmother, yes. And all those characters appear, um, some of those characters appear actually in a short story that Joy Williams wrote earlier called Breakfast that came out before this, but it's unimportant. You don't have to read that story. This is sort of, that's what my friend, Sarah Maria Griffin, who's a writer, she would refer to as the sourdough starter for this book. Um, it's not necessarily (laughs) related. It's just overlapping. And so I think that, yeah, I mean, you have these relationships forming, as you said, but they get strange and they're surprising relationships for sure. They're not yeah. the expected ones. And the first one we get is with a security guard, actually, that they talk to again and again. And um, a lot of times the characters they come across don't have pleasant afterlives after <laughs> the two of them pass through, you know? Yeah, there's, there's also a, the... Oh, oh, sorry. Sorry, dude. No, just uh, quickly about the, the two main characters. So the protagonist is Liberty and her husband, Willie, is uh, quite a character. I mean, she's kind of a reserved, very introverted, stays quiet a lot and listens a lot. And she's kind of this observer. And Willie is more extroverted. He goes around rescuing people, but he's also very aloof, very, very difficult to understand. I had the, the, the impression that he was some kind of sociopath at times. And the other thing I, I want to mention is that the level of the dialogue is extremely high. Like everyone is eloquent. Everyone has this crazy theories about 
reality in life and, and these ideas. Everyone's been through a kind of hell. It doesn't feel naturalistic in that sense. It doesn't feel like she's trying to depict what talking to random people in the Florida Keys would be like. In that sense, it's kind of a fantasy novel that contributes to the dreamlike quality, I think, is that um, you'll have some random person will uh, suddenly will go into this ridiculously elaborate and beautiful poetic soliloquy about uh, about something. And it's, um, yeah, and I found that striking. And Liberty is kind of just the center of the axis of this world. She's kind of observing all this, taking it all in. And then finally at the end only, I think, really starts to take action. Although she's doing things all along, but... It really is kind of the liberty story, the story of how liberty will achieve a kind of, uh, I guess, what you call an inner liberty, <laughs> a freedom of sorts. Yeah, Willie is an interesting character, partly because in a sense, he's not a character at all. He's a surface, mm-hmm. at least to me in, in my uh, feelings about this story. I was reminded of a famous line from American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of abstraction, but there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And though I can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense our lifestyles are probably comparable, I simply am not there. And the fit isn't perfect, but at the same time, there is something of that to Willie, that people love him. He's effortlessly charismatic. He's apparently a very good-looking man who presents himself very well. Everybody loves him. And yet he's sort of like a shiny object that sort of mirrors people's wants, their hungers. He himself is kind of strange, a little vacuum of hunger, because he moves into people's homes. He's the the one who does the thing. Liberty just yeah. kind of is along for the ride because she loves her husband. That is one thing that you, I at least never questioned, is even at the end where she seems to have departed from him in some way. There's still kind of a heartache around him. Genuinely well, loves she, him. He leaves her. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then at the same time, there's no subjectivity there. He moves into people's places, but he's not a thief. He'll drink the liquor he finds there and wear the clothes of the people who are absent. But it's not out of a lust for possession. He doesn't want things. He doesn't have comprehensible motivations. He's an actor moving through the world, presenting as a person... And a person is, among other things, a sum of their hungers. At one point, he's compared to the monks of Athos in Greece, you know, like he, like he, he should have been some kind of ascetic or some kind of saint. But yeah. He's just, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of um, the DC Comics character, the Phantom Stranger, a bit. This sort of strange enigma figure with a hat and a trench coat who just appears and says these cryptic things and then disappears, you know. And and people tried to make, like, you know, limited series out of the Phantom Stranger, but it never really worked because you just wanted the person who was wandering on. Or there's also a character in Ulysses, the man in the Macintosh, who is spotted throughout the book, who... He has such a presence for everybody that sees him, but but you don't quite know what he's doing there. And so I like the idea of you saying a surface, although 
there is also a tenderness there because Liberty loves him. And, you know, though Liberty is the protagonist, it starts off really focusing on Willie. And, you know, you almost yeah. you think it's going to be his book because he speaks so much and Liberty doesn't. But one of the, I think, really striking things is that as the book goes on, the characters become less and less an intelligible to each other. Their words begin to mean less to each other. You actually, like I said before, there's a certain point in which you kind of wonder who's alive and who's dead. Right. Um, and I mean, what a strange thing that slowly the characters drift away from each other and the narrative therefore falls apart because the relationships can't there's no coherence in them because the language between them no, no longer lines up. So in the beginning, the language is strange, but plain enough. You know, mm. I mean, I think the first part of dialogue is like Willie is talking to <laughs> a, a security guard who is related to the person who struck and killed James Dean with his car. And I actually, I looked up to see if that was the real name turnip seed. And it was, you know, this time I looked that up. Okay. <laughs> um, and so like, I think the first, yeah, the first line of dialogue in this is the guard said, the doctor says to me, say you want to see the Taj Mahal. You travel all the way to the Taj Mahal, but then you don't go inside. You don't pay the little extra to make the trip worthwhile. What was he talking about, Willie asked? Me. The Taj Mahal was inside of me. And like he's actually he's talking about his cancer and his cancer treatment and how the doctors, you know, were like disappointed in how he was handling the treatment and using grapefruit, you know, supplements or something like that rather than getting the surgery. But we start out with that. So that's weird, but it makes sense. It's like, okay, so he's just sort of talking metaphorically. And you can understand that this is how people speak with each other. We say things that make complete sense to us. But if you take them out of context, you know, if you just put them on the page and let them float like that, the Taj Mahal, when you're talking about yourself and or the doctor's mm -hmm. talking about you, they seem very strange. But as the book goes on, because... All the dialogue is like that. It has that kind of weirdness to it. You don't quite see when the dialogue between people starts drifting apart. But more and more, you feel the distance between everybody as it goes on. And then you realize no one's actually talking to each other at all. And they're almost all incomprehensible to each other. Um, right. That's very alarming. <laughs> And this is really important what you're saying, because I, I want to correct or modify something I said earlier, which is that it's not a naturalistic novel. But in fact, I think that what you've just kind of hinted at there is that, in fact, this is probably more the way actual people talk than what we consider to be naturalistic dialogue in, in novels, which I find more often than not, I find kind of boring because it's so means an end. It's such a means to an end. Whereas in this, you're kind of in these, this world of monologues. And I think that in actual reality, if I walk down around my neighborhood and talk to my neighbors, I'm going to hear a lot of monologues. I, I don't hear that many dialogues. <laughs> and in that sense, in a way, maybe her, her novel is quite naturalistic. And again, I guess is pointing out through this this stylistic approach that she has is pointing to the, the kind of dreamlike nature of reality. I mean, a world where everyone is talking to one another, but are actually, there's no real communication taking place is kind of a dream world, a world where everyone is living inside their own kind of oniric landscape. And these landscapes touch in some strange way, but there's no real communication between things. 
Yeah, I, I mean, in fact, <laughs> when people directly respond to each other, either it seems very canned or it's absurd. So you can imagine, like, I think it's, what is it, the rhinoceros? Or is it the rhinoceros or whatever by Ionesco, where the Ionesco, two people are right. like, yeah. oh, uh, what a coincidence. I, too, live here. Well, and I walk down this lane. What a coincidence. I, too, walk down the same lane. Like, <laughs> the direct back and forth is absolutely absurd. And one of the things that in some ways I probably shouldn't say this because I used to teach writing and like do writing coaching and stuff. And this was one of the big insights that I was like, yes, I can actually offer, but whatever, everybody can have it now is that, <laughs> you know, when you're writing dialogue, one of the things that I tell people is that, look, people don't talk to each other. What happens is someone speaks and the other person has a thought about what is said and they respond to the thought of what was said. Right. They don't respond to what the other person said. It takes tremendous Christian, I would say, although people can reject that, but it takes tremendous kind of Christian insight in a way to be able to allow the other person in. In other words, to make a negative space of yourself, to allow the words to the of the other to appear for you truly as they are and hear actually what is being said, which is beyond actually just the form of the words that are being presented to but to not respond to the thought, that's very hard. And so mostly people are responding to the thoughts they have about what the other has said. And if you have characters like this who are quite complex, especially Liberty and Willie, you know, they're only responding to the strange inner world that they have that is, uh, you know, trying in some ways and, and failing in others to, you know, relate to the person that's before them. And so I think as their thoughts become more involved, meaning like actually in involving, you know, with themselves, it becomes harder for them to even uh, have anything that looks like dialogue, even though it never really was in the first place. That's super interesting. That's the most brilliant insight into the nature of dialogue I've ever heard. I mean, I, I've tried to articulate something like that. Like I've said things like dialogue should always be oblique, right? Um, it should always kind of miss its mark. Every line should kind of miss its mark. And it's because of that. It's because people are reacting to their own stuff. And therefore, the dialogue is never as direct as it'll be in, for example, I don't know, like a, a Jason Bourne movie, where the dialogue is only there for the mechanical purposes of the plot. People don't talk that way. In dialogue like this, you're seeing, it's funny, because if you read Plato, you'll see this in Plato, that people are reacting to thoughts. And the way the weird turns the dialogues take in a sense, shows us that Plato had a pretty profound insight into the nature of the human mind and how uh, two minds need to struggle to meet one another. Yeah, so I just want to say that that is something I'll take with me. That's a really brilliant little piece of advice there. Thanks for sharing it. Um, I hope you've, you've TM'd it, trademarked it somehow, because <laughs> it's good. I don't write fiction or haven't written fiction, and so I don't have a relationship to that thought from the point of view of trying to think of things for characters to say that sound like things people would actually say. But it seems very psychologically true that most conversation isn't conversation. Mostly people aren't actually talking to their interlocutor. They're just waiting for their turn. And that's okay. That's just like kind of how we are, I guess. But at the same time, one of the things this novel feels like is loneliness, deep, deep feelings of loneliness. And there's a kind of loneliness as a character, so talking to one another, but not connecting. I mean, this is a 
thing going on between Willie and Liberty is Liberty loves her husband, but she doesn't really know him. You know, no. he's opaque to her. But this is a condition that seems to affect all of the characters. And some of the dreamlike and surreal flavor of this novel comes from the fact that people are relating to one another so abstractly. There's an abstraction here, an abstraction of the thought from the human situation. And what we might think of as a real intimate conversation is something coming from the exchange of human energies, the whole human situation. But what you're talking about is the abstraction of that into a thought, into my thought, which is like my personal property that I'm going to then bring to the conversation as a way of putting value into it. But then that is an abstract way of relating. And what Williams does is she takes something that's actually very naturalistic, something that humans do all the time, and simply lighting it up in a certain way so that it feels grotesque and surreal. And you have this sense of these characters spinning idly in a void and never somehow connecting to one another or even sort of seeing one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it doesn't, it <laughs> doesn't help. I, whatever uh, it, it does help uh, or it changes it. That also this, the narrative that's not the dialogue is just as, I don't know if evasive is the right word, but I'm I'm looking here. There's a part where Liberty's talking to somebody and she's just noticing the sky. And I'm just going to weave two paragraphs here together. In the sky, a solitary pink cloud hurried by. It seemed just the type of cloud that would appear in answer to an unspoken prayer, dumping rain precipitously, for example, on a single patch tree in a forest. The cloud hurried over the gulf, and then the small pink cloud Liberty had noticed earlier seemed to have reversed direction was now hovering directly overhead. Liberty had the unsettling feeling that the cloud was about to rain blood on them. This was not unheard of, but it usually happened in places like Calabria or Tennessee. Homer had even (laughs) written about it, although, of course, Homer had been blind. Liberty remained still, barely breathing, until the terrible feeling passed. And, I mean, you guys have brought up a bunch of times this line from uh, Deleuze and Guattari, where it's like, thought is like the witch's flight or something like that. Mm. But all Mm. the actions of the world are also completely wild here. And she mirrors that in the writing. So she does her own sort of thinking through the actions of the objects in the sky, on the beach, in the houses, everything. So it's not just that she had the unsettling feeling that the cloud would rain blood. I mean, that's strange enough. And okay, maybe someone might think that, but is that what you would put in the narrative? But then, you know, this is not unheard of. So she moves over then to some sort of fact And then, but it usually happened in places, usually like Calabria or Tennessee. What? And then Homer had even written about it. Although, of course, Homer had been blind. So it's always this sort of, this changing of track. And this is something she just does as a writer, where she follows the thought of the sentence and she follows the thought of the object and the image all at once. And it's extremely unsettling. So, you know, I would say like the, the witch's flight thing, but it's... It's even more than that, you know, she writes about animals so much. It's like uh, the running path of a hare or something like that, that's constantly doubling back on itself and moving in these directions you don't expect it to and can move in the middle of a sentence. You don't know where you'll end up in the end of the sentence from what happens in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. She nails something that, that we've discussed a lot on the show. One of my pet ideas that we've discussed a lot, and I think 
Phil, you've 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 had a similar idea too. It's the idea of the a causal. That what if this is something I got from reading Quentin Mayasu, the French philosopher, and this idea that reality might not fundamentally be causal. So that causality is kind of something happening in some subsidiary or secondary tier. That the 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 real is beyond the causal. And, you know, David Hume famously argued that causation could only be something inferred. It can't be something known. It can't be a logical axiom and all that. So in this book, it's kind of in one way, it's like one thing after another. The pink cloud shows up for no plot related reason. It's a pure kind of synchronicity, but it's not a synchronicity with a predetermined meaning or some kind of um, prophetic or divinatory function in the plot. It's synchronistic by virtue of its merely appearing there at that moment, in a sense, for no reason. But since there is no fundamental, rational grounding for things, everything has that quality of just appearing one thing after another. As I was reading, I was like, like, I was thinking David Mamet would fucking hate this book, right? (laughs) David, David Mamet wrote my least favorite book on filmmaking ever. It's called On Directing, in which he argues against the European art films, as he calls them. He argues that these art films, what they try to do is come up with one interesting thing after another. And therefore, the onus is always on the writer to come up with or the, the director to come up with an even more interesting or shocking thing to follow the last one so that the film uh, retains uh, the viewer's attention. Whereas a good American film is a plot. It's a machine. It's like a piece of furniture. It functions. Everything has its place. Everything has a reason for being where it is. And it's so funny because as I was reading, it's like you haven't addressed the question. What makes those quote unquote, interesting things in European art cinema, interesting, like what makes something interesting? In a sense, it has nothing to do with what its purpose is or what its role is in some plot machinery. I get bored to death the minute I feel plot encroaching in a book. Like I, I kind of, I love the, the way that novelists set up a world. And then the minute things get plotty, I usually lose interest. Why am I like that? I don't know. This is just the way I am. But I love this capacity she has to show us the world as a kind of a causal phenomenon where one thing happens then another and all of a sudden the situation is completely different and a bunch of aleatory or random elements that have cropped up and popped up out of nowhere transform the situation such that you can't really tell how you got from point a to point b but it all kind of makes sense in this kind of sub-rational way like I, I don't know and it to me that feels very real it feels very much like how reality feels when you relinquish this grasp this tendency we have to try to impose narrative on things and just look at things as they are as they unve- develop and they life is pretty weird like you know you don't need to read ghost stories or I you don't need to go ghost hunting <laughs> to experience the weird. The weird is kind of everywhere. It's in every particle. And she's really good at drawing that out. Well, it was funny that you bring up the David Mamet thing, because one of the things he says, because he has a great book about acting and you're yeah, right. Like, I mean, he he's, he's really, I mean, he's really annoying in a lot of ways, but that book on acting is really great. And one of the things that he says in it basically is he's like, so the actors are like, what's my motivation? And I just say, there are words on the page. 
you look at the words on the page and you memorize them and you say what's written, right? And right. there's this sort of like the trust that somehow what's written down will erupt through the trusted actor rather than creating some sort of backstory is much closer to what happens in this book than what you're talking about with the directing, where it's like things will show up and act as they may because they're written down on the page and you don't know why they're saying what they're saying. And yet it just, it happens and it makes sense in its own way. It's not a sense that we're used to, and it doesn't necessarily even have a coherence to it exactly. Well, it does have, it, it coheres, but I wouldn't say it has coherence, you know? And so right. it, it, it does something as a whole because what's written on the page acts. about this is very interesting to me how things show up in experience and how they are assigned importance or how it is they are important or how it is they are meaningful and and think about what you were just saying jf about plot that whenever you're watching a movie and it gets plotty you start losing interest and i get that and i was thinking about one of my favorite genres of movie which is uh, the movie musical especially old school like fred and ginger rko musicals from the 30s uh, i think there's a movie that has as a plot that you can choose some cinematic universe to live in as paradise like when you die you can choose what heaven you're going to live in my idea is i would live in the fred and ginger world of those 30s rko musicals pure Pleasure, pure pleasure. And I uh, recently rewatched Top Hat, and the plot feels particularly clunky. There's a, a mistaken identity plot that, you know, Ginger thinks Fred is 
married or carrying on affair. I already forget the details of the plot because it's irritating and extraneous and it just exists to move things along to the conclusion. But, you know, the conclusion being that they fall into one another's arms, which could have happened in the first five minutes, but then we wouldn't have had a film. So we need this mistaken identity plot. And the thing that makes those films so wonderful so wonderful is mood. Just, you know, the fact of the singing and dancing, the motion, the design of the sets, all of these aesthetic things that create that fantastical mood, that that paradisical mood to me at any rate. And, you know, I always feel like what I love is the mood and you could cut away all that plot shit. The, the plot is essential only because in a musical, the plot is subordinated to these moments of pure jouissance or pure enjoyment where everything kind of right. explodes into affect. But yes. the plot sets that up. Like uh, Sound of Music is a great example of that really working, I find. Uh, when the music starts, you know exactly why it's happening. And it's like, oh, all that plotty stuff happens so that I could experience this. In a sense, the musical is formalistically very similar to a, like a porn film right? You have like just enough plot to justify the kind of explosion of affect of the, you know, the dance number or the sex scene or whatever. Another movie that adopts that form is Crash, David Cronenberg's Crash. Um, and, also, and it's, also of martial arts films. Martial arts films, right. Another favorite so, genre. Yeah, correct. So all this to say that the reason that plot makes sense in those films is because it exists in order to uh, bring about a kind of moment that transcends plot, a, a moment kind of without purpose, a moment that is its own kind of justification by virtue of its own occurrence. It, it justifies itself. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, this is another thing that I, I would say to writers when I was teaching was that like, yeah, so plot is basically what you do to move your style from one house to the next, right? So like plot is... It allows style to travel, to entwine itself around posts, you know, to like raise monuments or create grave sites or whatever as it goes, like the formative motion of style in the same way that, you know, when we're developing our hearts, our blood flow is what forms the passages of the tissue and the sinews of the muscle of the heart. So the blood forms the heart, which then later starts to direct, direct it and assist it. And I think it's like, you know, what you were talking about before, Jeff, with uh, the Quentin Milissieux, I, ca I can't stand him, but I think that the, <laughs> that, but, the but the interesting part that you pulled out there is like a Lacanian insight. You know, Lacan is, is just say like, look, we're all basically schizophrenic or, or paranoid schizophrenics. Like if you imagine this sort of board on the wall with, you know, the conspiracy theory with all the strings of yarn between everything, like the schizophrenic is just the person for whom that's on the surface. But we all do that. We all create twine, you know, tw twine, yarn, whatever, between things that aren't actually related and we relate them and that's how we understand the world. And we do that because desire has a kind of flow, you know, and, and then Deleuze and Guattari would then say, yeah, but it's important to understand why these flows and how they work and, and to not just say, well, this flow could just be like any other and, or they fall into right. three psychoanalytic diagnoses, criteria, neurotic, psychotic, or perverted. So it's, 
the style that is flowing around the objects that it flows around are not so important. The plot that it flows around is not so important. It's the desire itself or the style itself. And she does that yeah. really, really well. We see this movement of style in her writing. And, you know, you can see bad versions of that. Like you would see, I don't know. Well, I don't want to name any living writers, but you can imagine those just sort of quirky indie writers or like indie filmmakers who do things just because it's like weird and cute or whatever to wrap around. And what that's forced style, that's like trying to insert style around, like to aggregate it around plot points. And that doesn't work. And then you have times that it's like a weird, unsettling balance. Like if you've seen Neon Demon, I think is a really good example of that where it's really unsettling because you can't tell if Nicholas Winding Refn blew it or if he actually created a masterpiece. And that is always one of the worst feelings and the best feelings, you know, when you go <laughs> yeah. see me. I, I, with that movie, I ultimately decided it was three months that I was still sort of thinking about was that good or bad. And then I decided it has to be good because I've never thought this question for three months before. So like if right. nothing else, <laughs> it gave me a, a long question that's unanswerable, you know. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think – you know, that's it. It's like this flow of style. And I think that you're right. <laughs> I think musicals are a great place to bring that up because that, that's just what they are. It, you know, one done well, especially in this kind of Wonderland, Busby, Berkeley, whatever that you're talking about, that this the style is obviously what's going on. Um, but it's, right. you know, it's different in a novel. We're not really used to seeing it unless we talk about something like, you know, Ulipo books or whatever, which I find also often a bit quaint, like a bit forced. Like this is miles beyond something like, uh, I'm sorry for anybody that, uh, but for me, this is miles beyond Calvino or uh, Georges Perec or something like that, where the constraint is set. There is no constraint here. It's desire flowing around the posts until it meets a really profound and kind of frightening end. Yeah. You know, there's a wonderful image of that, of what just what you said. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought, Connor. The flow of desire and, you know, that we're stretching lengths of yarn between objects to come up with a scaffolding of some kind of conscious understanding of how these things relate. But really what we're talking about is the flow of desire. I love that. There's a wonderful image of that when after a period of separation, Willie just goes off sometimes and he doesn't say where he's going he'll just say that announce that he's leaving and he's going to go, just go and do mysterious willy things and then he will pop back into liberty's life just as mysteriously as he had left they do in fact have a place that is their own that they don't always live in so they break into people's houses but they also have a rundown place of their own that where they live and Liberty is there when she gets a message from Willie. Okay, I'm such and so a place. What you're going to do, instead of telling her to walk a road or take a certain path, he tells her to find a certain place where the tide will be at a certain height at a certain time, and then to allow herself to just float and let the receding tide carry her to a certain place. And that's where he will meet her. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, I love that. That is the... <laughs> That's kind of what it asks the reader to do, doesn't? Isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's also this thing here of the, um, and and again, she does this in a lot of her writing. It was this naming, 
and renaming. So they move in and out of houses. And then there's also sort of a recapitulation of things, of objects. So there's one chapter where she just sort of details what each person would respond inwardly to when they think the word river. And um, Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. And she does this a lot where something gets sort of folded over on itself again and again. In her short story, Congress, which I think is her best, the best thing she's ever written and which subsequently informed her novel, The Quick and the Dead, I, th I think. I mean, there's some similarities. So the story Congress... And it's online. Everybody just go fucking read this bizarre thing. It's about this woman who's married to this um, forensics guy and he becomes paralyzed and sort of, well, actually beyond paralyzed, he uh, has a brain injury and um, he would hunt and she takes four deer legs that he has and she turns them into a lamp. And the lamp she just takes around with her everywhere and it starts to have its own personality to her. And um, <laughs> and so she decides to go to this taxidermy museum in the middle of the desert where the curator is known as this sort of oracle. Um, so anyway, but wow. the lamp, she puts books underneath it to let it read. And so this is a passage from that. Um, the lamp is hovering over Moby Dick. So she's thinking about it at home because she's placed Moby Dick underneath. Hovering over Moby Dick, it would be deeply involved in it by now, slamming down Melville like water, the shapeless maw of the undifferentiating sea, God as indifferent and sentient being composed of an infinitude of deaths, nature, gliding, bewitching, majestic, capable of universal catastrophe. The lamp was eating it up. And so she does this again and again, has this kind of wave-like feeling where it's like certain things she won't leave alone. Like this is the description right. of Moby Dick. God as indifferent yeah. and sentient <laughs> being composed of an infinitude of deaths. I mean, it's just. Well, that's, that's it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, she, it is a great description of Moby it. Dick, isn't it? As read by a lamp made out of um, deer hooves. But I mean, I think that, you know, it's the same thing with the river. And it also reminds me of this, um, this passage in Ulysses, then the second to last chapter, I won't read the whole thing because it's very, very long, but that chapter is all question and answer. And there's one question and answer about water. What in water did Bloom, Leopold Bloom, water lover, drawer of water, water carrier, returning to the range admire. And then there's like a page and a half or so of just different descriptions of water. It's universality, it's democratic equality and constancy to its nature and seeking its own level. It's persistent formation of homothetic islands. It's vehicular ramifications and continental lake contained streams and confluent ocean flowing rivers with their tributaries and transoceanic currents. I mean, on and on and on. And then it ends with, you know, faded flower water, stagnant pools and the waning moon. And I think that there's something about, again, the folding over, I don't know why I'm saying it that way, but just the, the folding and the folding and the folding, or maybe it's the unfolding of the different ways to describe things, the different ways to name things, the different houses to inhabit that keeps us constantly, like you've said, in this realm that is dreamlike, but it's somehow beyond dreamlike. It's like the, the sort of quantum possibility is always there because you don't know what you're going to get, but you know you're going to get many versions of it. One of the prophetic 
truths of um, specifically, I'd say, American literature, at least, you know, this is my own take on it, um, is this kind of the, the genius of water. And it, it goes back to Melville, really. But you'll find it even in like Walt Whitman and stuff. And I, I like what you were just reading from Ulysses there, the kind of democratic nature of water. So that's beat up the political manifestation or the political instantiation of the nature of water would be something like democracy, right? The demos being this kind of crowd that decides things and finds its own shape. But also water becomes a kind of metaphysical principle in Moby Dick for imminence, a purely imminent God, a God that isn't formally outside projecting form onto the world in this kind of Aristotelian way, but rather a God that is the kind of formlessness of life itself, with the ever, ever form-seeking formlessness of life. And um, the fact that this novel takes place always in proximity to the sea is important. And the, the waves manifest in the text itself, as you were just explaining, but also manifest in the images, in the image of the sea, which is always present in the, in the book. But there's also another kind of reference to Melville, which I think is the white dog, right? Um, Clem, the white dog, being a kind of uh, reincarnation of the white whale. The way that the dog kind of reduces people to silence or like it strikes everyone. He like this dog really makes an impression everywhere he goes and people can't help but comment on this dog. The dog seems to be a reminder of something to people, of something they can't really articulate and maybe this has also something to do with that kind of pure imminence, that pure formlessness, that pure flow of desire that undergirds the apparently coherent formations of like a rational world, you know? Since I was a kid, I've been having nightmares about white German shepherds. And, um, and I even had a strange, I've never talked, I've never said this part publicly, but even when I was a kid, <clears throat> I was in the basement of my house and there was like, you know, when you're in the basement and the window is like near the ceiling, 
Right. And someone leaned into that window and growled and said, the white wolf, like in this growling voice. And I was like, I was like, Wah! like I freaked out. And they said wolf, not dog. But Wait, that night- was a dream or that actually happened? <clears throat> no, that happened. The dreams oh, were about white dogs, these really cruel white dogs. And they would bark at me, growl at me, try to attack me. And um, when I got older, I... I was first in school for religious studies at uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania. And my professor, Teresa Smith, had written a lot of books about Ojibwe myth. And she started talking about this case. Um, it, it turned into a court case about religious freedom where this man who is an Ojibwe man went home and saw in his house a white dog um, a white German shepherd with turquoise earrings in his ears. And he shot it and then it turned back into his wife. And he said, I had to shoot it because it, it was a bear walker. I, I thought it was my wife, but even though it was a dog, a bear walker, this symbol. And she, she said, this is this dog is like these white animals sometimes can be symbols of pure evil. And I got so chilled that I walked out of class. I couldn't take it. And I had to just, I sat outside for a little while and she came up to me. She's like, what happened? And I told her and she's like, Hmm, okay. (laughs) Nothing ever came of it. Years later, I was in my MFA program at UMass Amherst and I wrote a story about that story. It was, I I mean, I don't have it anymore, but it's called the tale of the tall trees. And it was about someone who's neighbor killed his wife and said she had turned into this white dog. And Joy Williams came to speak at UMass as she often would, I I guess she often stops by there and does this thing called the Juniper Institute. But she came to speak and she was one of my favorite writers, but I had not yet read this book. So there was no connection between the white dogs and my imagination, much less the story and Joy Williams writing, even though she was one of my very favorite writers. I just hadn't read this book yet. So I walked up to her after she read an essay, which is one of the best essays. Oh, God, it's one of the best essays ever written. And you guys, and especially I think, Phil, you'd like it. It's called Hawk, and it's about Glenn Gold, and especially oh. his hands, and then also her German shepherd attacking her. Ooh, so it's re- yeah, it's a really heartbreaking essay. So she reads this essay, and I go up with my story about this white dog. After she reads a story about a dog attack or an essay about a dog attack, and I'm like, "Hey, listen, you're one of my favorite writers. I just want to give this story to you. I mean, I'm just like starstruck, you know." And she's like, "Oh, she's like, okay, write your address down." And I was like. So I wrote down my email address and she went, my boy, you know nothing of me. Write down your address. And I said, okay. (laughs) So I wrote down my physical address. Never thought anything of it again. A few months later, I got an envelope from her in the mail, (laughs) typed on a typewriter on the back of a page from a proof of the quick and the dead was a letter saying how much she liked my story. Oh, that's wonderful. And I was... You know, she's done this with other young writers I, I'd heard, but I'd ha- I didn't know that then. But I, you know, it doesn't make it any less special to me. I was just floored. I mean, I was like, fuck. 
then I read the novel and I was like, shit, she must have thought that the white dog was me writing about a white dog and giving her the story about the white dog because of the white dog and breaking and entering. Right, right. She met with me a year later. She came back to UMass and she met with me and she sat down at a restaurant outside and she brought with her from either Florida or Arizona, wherever she was living at the time, these two giant German shepherds, which she drove in a truck. She sat down with her sunglasses flanked at this restaurant, um, sitting in his chair with these two giant German shepherds on either side, looking like a fucking tarot card and (laughs) talked to me about Gurdjieff. And it was just like, I mean... The tracing of that experience, and I mean, I haven't talked to her since, you know, I mean, that was years ago, but obviously that had a profound fucking effect on my imagination, you know, so I had to bring that story to it with the white dogs and, and to find a white dog in her book, you know, one that's supposed to be good was really frightening. What a wonderful chain of events. What a remarkable story. I find your story way too plotty. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, I was about to say the opposite of that, that what I love about your story is that we're just, you know, I love what you just said about her sitting there flanked by dogs looking like a tarot card. And your story is like a tarot card. It sets up this vivid image and... You know, the, the the commonplace plotty way to resolve this would be like some kind of punchline. And then the, the white dog came back in your life in some mysterious way, you know. And then I went to the pet shelter and I found a white dog and he's my best friend or whatever. But this is the thing about and this is actually where I was trying to go when I was talking about film musicals. And I never made it there thinking about the way objects appear in our existence. An, ob- an object can be the dream of a white dog or an object can be a funny colored rock on your walk to work or something. I was thinking about how objects, odd objects or extraordinary objects appear in a video game. You know, I've been playing a lot of Zelda lately, Zelda Breath of the Wild, and you're walking through this vast landscape and you see a funny shaped rock. You should probably go over and check that out because there's probably some thing that will happen there. Like there's a monster there or a little sprite that can give you something or whatever, but that's not actually how things work in our actual life. That's how we tell stories about things that happen in our life. But what often happens is like contrary to like video game logic, you see something odd, you go there, you look at it and it's just an odd thing. And it's oddness kind of radiates into your unconscious life into the iceberg-like part of your life that you don't see, where it continues to live its own existence in dreams mm. or in fantasies or in the stories that you write or or in the conversations you have with people. And things happen to that. It undergoes transformations. It accumulates meanings and contexts. But there isn't any particular thing that happens or place that it goes. There's a kind of uh, opacity of meaningful objects. And it seems to me that that is something that this book, Breaking and Entering, is very faithful to. That that's how things appear in the lives and in the conversations of the characters of this story. A certain kind of 
you know, we were saying, is this surrealism or just plain old realism? This is a certain kind of realism that feels utterly dreamlike. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Like that pink cloud, right? Uh, but just going back to the whiteness thing, because the white dog, the white whale, white fang, you know, another classic American white dog, uh, this idea of the you know, the traditional, maybe uh, indigenous belief that the, the albino animal is singled out or um, evil in quotes, evil in the sense that outside, outside of the usual frame of meanings and, and associations, because it subtracts itself from the order of things. Like the evil of the whiteness that Melville wrote about, and maybe she's giving it a new form in, in her book. Joy Williams is bringing in the white animal as the kind of symbol of, let's call it indifference or innocence, maybe, like the innocence of pure flows of desire, that the flow of desire precedes any type of moral attribution to things, that there's something kind of like... Um, you get this from Deleuze, that desire is not something to be judged, you know, or Nietzsche, right? Desire precedes judgment. It is the kind of pure force of the real as it manifests. And then after that, we come out with our judgments and interpretations. And maybe what's coming out, of the, 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 maybe Clem, the white dog, is a particularly clear, maybe, or uh, a symbol of that kind of fundamental opacity of things. But it's all over the place in this novel, as, as Phil was just saying. It's like everything reveals itself fully, and by virtue of that self-revelation becomes completely opaque, impossible to penetrate or to reduce to some kind of meaning, to some kind of interpretation. Everything withstands, resists uh, any final judgments. There's so much in what both of you guys said. So... Let's see if I can go through this. Like, you know, I'm thinking about video game objects. There, I had a guy on my show, Stephen Sexton, who wrote a book called um, If All the World and Love Were Young, which is a book of poetry. And each poem has the title of a level on Super Mario World. And it's transposed like these these levels are transposed with his mother's death. But he basically did sort of nature writing about in Super Mario World, the trees, the clouds, the grass. I mean, really just amazing idea. But right, you see these things repeat. You see on a video game the, with, with the exactitude that the images and the objects repeat. You know, they fade into the background because they're so exact. And of course, they're made out of, you know, for us, really made out of light. But um and and so so he he gave value to them in a way you know like he gives something to them as he writes about them but when we see repeating objects in our lives we <laughs> again it's like they allow for a kind of style of living when it's you know difference in repetition or difference as repetition or is repetition like you see something and when you see it again and you've added to it and you add to it every single time you see it I meet you. The next time I talk to you, I remember your name and the first encounter. You know, I see a flower. The next time I see that flower or one like it, I remember, you know, I bring to it something new. So I keep adding and adding and adding. And so, and the way that I interact with a repeating object is me living a style of living. And some people don't register repeating objects at all. 
some people forget the names of authors and movies and places. They forget people's names. They forget years of their lives. You know, I mean, we all forget some years of our lives, you know, and some people intensely remember everything and it's still dull. It might as well just be just, you know, be litter. But in any case, the repetition of objects allows for a certain style of living. And so when we talk about the desire desire flowing through, the objects become, how do I say this? They become the heavy judgments of desire. When we see something that's become opaque or that's been drawn down into solid physical form, our desire pronounces a kind of judgment on it that we think inheres in the object, but is actually emanating from us adding to whatever it was we were encountering with the shock of the new before. Beautiful. Yeah, that's really well said. Yeah, because what what is style but repetition, right? Like we, we can talk about authors, but we could easily just talk about somebody's life. People have, a, as you just said, a style of living, a style of existence or a mode of existence or whatever. A style. Style is the word. You identify an artist's style by picking up on what repeats, right? On how certain images, certain turns of phrase, certain techniques come up again and again. And if the artist is good, then it's this, every repetition brings, adds something new to what is going on. And the style is, it creates itself through these repetitions. And it seems to me that because the object that is repeated is always being kind of uh, inflated through desire, through the judgment of desire, let's say, that it is not reducible to any of those judgments, as you just said. So therefore, the opacity of objects is something kind of fundamental. And the fact that things are opaque doesn't mean that they're meaningless. It means that they stand out in a kind of Heideggerian sense as themselves. Exactly. And that, Precisely. in a sense, is what we mean by the meaning of things. <laughs> like, in, in a way, it's not when things explain their function and some kind of divine plot that things reveal their true nature, but rather when things are able to exist in themselves as opaque. And I, I don't know. I, I think we're, I'm, I'm getting a little caught in the weeds, but. Uh, no, but you've made, yeah. you've made me want to ask Phil a question actually, because like, so sure. this is something with music where I was just thinking about it this morning or yesterday morning or whatever. I was listening to the new Sleigh Bells album and Sleigh Bells sounds basically the same every single album. And I'm always like, when are you guys going to do something new? But then immediately I catch myself and I'm like, I really don't want you to do anything new because this is just (laughs) what I want from you. Right. And there's always that music review thing where there are some reviewers who are like, you haven't learned anything. You haven't grown, you know, and then there are the music reviewers who are like, it's just too much of a dramatic departure. Like, what are you guys doing? You know, and so we want. The overlay of something that we know in music from album to album. So we want the repetition and we want the difference, but we want that balanced in the right way for us. And the ratio of difference to repetition becomes a a sort of moral or ethical standard for the reviewer and for for certain kinds of listeners. And it's always kind of... I don't know where to stand with that. Is it a compliment to say, oh, you can tell this is a so-and-so song? Or is that actually an insult? I mean, and certainly like, you know, one Kronos Quartet album to another 
some of them you just can't tell. Like you wouldn't yeah. know if nobody told you. But that's because they decide, even though they're the Kronos Quartet, to use all sorts of different instruments and all this sort of stuff and bring in different collaborators. But I'm wondering about that movement in music, but also I bet it applies more broadly to some of the things we're talking about here. Oh, man. Well, yeah, you just said something very important about the problem of style. You know, like when we're listening to a new album by an artist we know and who kind of hits the spot. Like I, th I was thinking of Boards of Canada as an example. I don't know if you listen to them. It's just like there's a certain kind of place their music goes where you're just like, it's mm, a sweet spot that somehow to me always captures the feeling of watching Canadian educational film strips when I was like nine. But yeah, do you want them to transcend that and then lose whatever that style is and therefore kind of grow as artists, as we like to say, where we think of growth or equate growth with difference, uh, departure from repetition? And as you say, it's sort of a, you know, in calculating the value of successive releases of an artist, this is how critics play it. They're sort of balancing repetition and difference. I think that's a pretty elegant way of breaking it down. It occurs to me that that's actually a way of thinking about style, that a moment ago, one of us, I forget who, was saying that style is repetition, which is kind of true. But then I was thinking of a book by a guy named Scott Burnham, who's a musicologist, a very beautiful book about Mozart, Mozart's style. One thing that he does in his analyses of different moments in Mozart's music is pointing out all of the things that we expect Mozart to do, things where we can say like, oh, yeah, that's very Mozartian. And anytime you say that's very Mozartian or Bachian or Wagnerian, you're talking about things that repeat such that you can say that that's typical of that artist's approach. But one thing that is typical, in a sense, of Mozart's approach but he's by no means the only one, is that the, the rifts, to use one of J.F.'s terms, uh, the rifts that appear within the supposedly placid classical surface, the image everybody has of Mozart is this sort of divine clockmaker making these perfect little gizmos that just operate as smoothly and perfectly as the movement of the stars in their courses. But that's not actually... What's going on in the most important moments of Mozart's music, as Burnham points out, it's where repetition, the repetition from which style is compounded, leads us to a point where repetitions fail and you're confronted with singularities, with moments of non-repetition, of difference. And sometimes those moments are like absolute difference that opens up a kind of like an abyss or a chasm before us. And I, I'm not going to tell you what we find there, because in a sense, that's that's the whole thing, the, the immensity of the mystery that we encounter in those moments, that style is repetition, but it can also be this kind of balance of difference and repetition. Mm. I, I think there's a deception involved in a lot of difference, like a lot of difference. You know, we can talk about, you know, I guess we could describe our consumer culture is a culture obsessed with difference, a revolutionary new razor with three blades, you know, like that type of difference, which is actually just kind of a masked sameness that, right. um, and then you have artists who have been, their genius has been to distrust that and actually seek out the new, the actually new, the, the really, what was truly new to them. Like one example of, of a writer who, who's, great at that is Samuel Beckett, who in his three great novels, uh, Malloy and uh, 
Malone dies in the unnameable, is engage in a kind of exercise of pure and utter, almost kind of like uh, tedious repetition or false starts. Like the characters are trying to start something, then they go back. No, that wouldn't be. And it's mirroring Beckett's own, I would say, mirroring Beckett's own quest to try to transcend Joyce, right? Because at that point, when he was just starting out, starting out in his mid 40s, because he'd been, you know, Joyce's secretary, right? He had the anxiety of influence big time with uh, with Joyce. He wasn't trusting his own sense of difference. I'm talking about the narrator now, not Beckett, although maybe they're very closely connected. But what you see in Beckett is an attempt to try to find something actually new and the willingness to repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and fail and fail again, as he says, until something new occurs. And the new is something that might very much look like what just happened a second ago, but it's just this one little kind of nuance or one little angle makes it utterly new, utterly different. But it can you can't extricate that type of pure difference from the repetition itself. That's kind of the whole point with the news, mm. right? Yeah. I so this is what I refer to um I talk about it on my show from time to time, although I, I should probably write something about it to flesh it out a little bit. Cause I just throw this out there. Um, the difference between occult art and mythic art. I hate mythic art for the most part. I don't mind myths and story, you know, whatever, but I like, I dislike star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Jung, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> um, I dislike, um, Joseph Campbell, any of that sort of stuff. And why? Because, I feel that I'm stuck in the cycle that isn't interested in puncturing itself or creating a kind of concave, convex sort of place for the light to come in by uh, inverting it and creating more room for something to flood it. A call art, Twin Peaks is probably the easiest example to point to where you feel Again, this thing maybe where we started, which is, you know, the, the place where something penetrates what we think of as the real, but also penetrates, you know, art itself, um, that it leaves the cycle. I feel that the gods in myths are desperate for us to rescue them and redeem them from their own boring cycle rather than being, you know, recreating Marvel movies um, where you know, the, the plot is familiar with some slight difference, but really is constrained, like, like in some sort of magical or enchanted chains to the rocks. And so the occult art and why I call it occult art is because it relies in some sense on the, I don't want to say ingenuity, but maybe the potential or the um, true the trueness of an individual, that the potency of individuation of a person where people are collaborating to create such a center of gravity by being their own Nietzschean star or their own universal being that it pulls the spiral away from itself. It pulls the cycle away from itself. And so it, it compels the gods to come with in the same way that mm. in later Greek myths, the gods need the human being to complete their task for them. Whereas before in the beginning, they were just all ruling over human beings. But at a certain point you see it tip over and they're like, could you do this for us? You know, and that task of art, you know, and I think, like I said, Twin Peaks is a great example. You watch, especially the third 
series and you're like, what the fuck? You know, I mean, the, 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 the earlier ones, of course, but you sense something is being threatened there. And I mean, in the case of, and you guys have talked about that famous episode, was it episode eight or whatever with the, yeah, the atomic right. bomb? You feel threatened by that. I mean, you feel like the people who watch the movie with the train, whatever that famous movie coming towards the screen and people reportedly ran out of the theater screaming because they thought the train was going to come through the screen. You feel that way about it because it's left the realm of the gods and said, you have no choice but to come with me because I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to redeem the gods themselves. Uh, and that yeah. is, that's a fucking threat. And that is the power of the human being. Um, and that's yeah. part of why we're here. And so Joy Williams does that with her novels, which is a surprising, weird place to find, you know, in some novel about you know, a young married couple living in people's houses in Florida. But, you know, suddenly there's someone talking about suicide to a dying heron. And it's like, how the fuck did I get here? How do I not know if this car wash is the passage into the realm of the dead? How do I not know where I am now? And it's because you've left the cycle. You've left the myth and you've entered into something new. You've been pulled by this force, you know? If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. to share with you this passage from the first page of The Quick and the Dead. I realize it's not the novel that we read, but I think it typifies Joy Williams's style. So in the first page of this novel, The Quick and the Dead, which is probably Joy Williams' best known novel, maybe this new one will become even better known, but she's written this novel about three girls basically in a desert who have parents, you know, missing for one reason or another and who are interested in some ways in eco-terrorism. There's some plot there and she's very bizarrely introduces characters until almost the very last chapter, new characters. And you're like, what, what's happening? When is this going to run aground? But the novel starts in the strangest way. So before she moves into the first chapter, which is, you know, um, the land in the spring of the year when Alice would turn 16 could not be said to be suffering from drought, and we move into character, there's this page. On the page is, So, you don't believe in a future life. Then do we have the place for you? You'd be home now if you lived here as the old signs promised, but first a few questions to determine if you qualify. What is the difference between being not yet born and having lived being now dead? Don't use reason without imagination here. A hair is the determinative sign defining the concept of being. Say you catch an actual hair of the desert and place a mirror to his nose. Will you observe that a moist breath mark will appear on the glass? 
The moisture comes from the hair, though there is not a drop of moisture going into him. Does this disprove the axiom of out of nothing, nothing comes? Do you consider the gulf between the material and the spiritual worlds only apparent? Don't worry about catching the hair. Do you believe that what has been is also now, and that what is to be has already been? The dead have certain obligations. Is one of them to remember us? Do you find that offensive? Do you find the dead ridiculous? How about the dead finding the living ridiculous? Nothing we do is inevitable, but everything we do is irreversible. How do you propose to remember that in time? Which would you prefer to have your life compared to? Wind or dust? Why? Sorry. Sorry.